0: A pastor today who doesn't preach either the book of Revelation or the truths found in Revelation, found in many other places in the New Testament, a pastor who does not preach prophecy in relation to the return of Christ, number one, as we'll see in a moment, he's doing a great disservice to unbelievers.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church, Buford, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the Revelation, and yesterday Dr. Brogy began a message entitled, What Happens When Jesus Returns? We have seen from the book of Daniel that there are two kinds of resurrections. There is the resurrection of the righteous, those who have trusted in the Messiah, and it's a resurrection of blessing. And then there's the resurrection of contempt for the rest. As we rejoin Dr. Brogi, he looks at what some of the blessings are that believers will receive. The Bible tells us these blessings are crowns for
0: service. There's what the Bible calls the imperishable crown, and this is the person, the believer, who is willing to consistently to die to self, to sinful nature, and God will reward him for that. Then there's the crown of rejoicing. I've dubbed it here the evangelistic crown. And Daniel is mentioning this here in Daniel 12, of those people who faithfully share their faith. God will reward them for that, and wouldn't you expect it? If the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, he will reward and honor the person who's doing what he's come to do. Then there's what the Bible calls the crown of life. James, the apostle, addresses this crown, and it's the person who faithfully perseveres through trials. Then there's what we call the crown of righteousness, or I've called it here the expecting crown. And it's the person who is rewarded because he is longing, he's expecting the return of Jesus from heaven. Do you know that God rewards you if you are longing for Christ's return? You say, why would he do that? It's obvious. Paul says, All that look for his return purify themselves as he is pure. John teaches the same thing. Then there's the crown of glory. What's the crown of glory? It's the shepherd's crown in 1 Peter 5. The pastor who faithfully teaches God's word. And by extension, the Christian, since we are all given that responsibility in Hebrews 5, who also faithfully teaches what he is learning. And these crowns, as we studied in Revelation 4, aren't going to be worn on our heads. The elders take those crowns and they cast them at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And so those who have insights, we might call these wise people. Those who have insight will shine brightly. Those who have insight in that they are taking the word of God and as God gives them ministry, they share it with people. Not to mention they share the gospel with the unbeliever Solomon says, the one who is wise wins souls. You know, when I need advice from someone, among other things I look for, is someone who's attempting to win people to Jesus because it tells me they're wise. It's well been said that if you want to plant something that will last for a year, then plant a flower. If you want to plant something that will, that will last for a lifetime, potentially plant a tree, but if you want to plant plant something that will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, then plant the gospel seed in someone's heart. Those who lead the many to righteousness will shine, he says, like the stars forever and ever. Now we come to the verse that I wanted to get to And it's essential that we understand this verse because it will help us to understand why John is given the opposite advice. John is told, we just read it in Revelation 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. We're here in Daniel 12 and verse 4, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up this book until the time of the end. Then he says, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So Daniel is told to conceal the words, to seal up the book, for the principal reason that these words have as their primary application a future time called the time of the end. Now, the sealing does not mean that these truths are hidden, but simply that they are later revealed in terms of their fullest meaning. However, it also needs to remind us that there's probably a lot more that Daniel was given that he never wrote down. But there's going to come a time when people are going to read and study the book of Daniel like they have never read or studied it. And he associates this time of study with the time of the end. Again, the great tribulation period. The book of Daniel will be read and studied all over again. Now, the modern critics for years said that Daniel was so specific in its prophecies that it was a second century A.D. I mean, Daniel 9 predicts the year the Messiah is going to come to the earth and present himself to the Jewish people as their Messiah. The day, actually. It makes all kinds of prophecies that will take place in the 400-year intertestament period. And so the critics say, well, this was a second century AD book. Ah, the Dead Sea Scrolls crushed that argument. Because while the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us a copy of the Old Testament book of Daniel that was a thousand years older than the previous copies we had... Still, a lot of the prophecies that are found in Daniel take place during the intertestament period and that even if someone dated the Dead Sea Scroll at 250 BC, many prophecies happen between that time frame and the time Jesus steps on the planet. It's an incredible, incredible book. So the close of verse four, which sadly has been misinterpreted in a number of ways, is key to understanding the first half of verse four. Let's look at it. He said, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And so some have said that this many will go back and forth refers to increased travel at the end of time in modern days. And so it's colorfully preached, you know, Daniel, Walked or he went on the speed of horseback and he communicated by a foot messenger. Where today we travel even potentially at the speed of sound and we can send messages at the speed of light. And so some will preach and knowledge will increase in terms of our ability to have knowledge at our fingertips, like the internet. And I could ride that horse and make it really colorful and try to impress you, but it's just not true. It's not true. Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And we are not to be dramatic in our teaching where we ignore the context nor the rest of Scripture that God has given. The Hebrew words translated to go to go to and fro, or to go back and forth, or here and there, or dash about, depending on which English translations you are reading, is used in the Old Testament of someone who is searching, not someone who's traveling. For instance, the chronicler writes in 2 Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Same Hebrew words. Jeremiah uses the same Hebrew words in the fifth chapter that he wrote. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth. Likewise, the prophet Amos records in the eighth chapter, people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Likewise, the prophet Zechariah, using the same Hebrew phrase, says in the fourth chapter, these are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the earth. So in each of these same verses, it's the Hebrew word short, and it refers to someone who's searching, someone who is looking. And the knowledge that they are going to desperately run back and forth, to and fro for, concerns answers that are found in God's word. When this awful, unbelievable time begins to happen in human history, when there are famines and earthquakes and natural disasters and demonic activity on the earth and bloodshed like the world has never seen, people will look for answers and some will go to and fro looking for knowledge found in the book of Daniel. And it will happen at the end of time. Now, most people today don't have a clue as to what the prophet Daniel is even about. They might possibly know the story of the three Hebrew men in the fiery furnace. Maybe they know the historical record as well of Daniel and the lion's den. But beyond that, most of what Daniel writes about, people don't have any idea about. And so Daniel, in that sense, is able to conceal up these words, this book, until the end of time, Number one, because there's coming a time when it will make a lot more sense. Uh, Some of the things that even Daniel writes about are difficult for someone in his day to understand. That's not to say they're not without value because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And even someone in Daniel's day, remember he's writing during the time of the Babylonian captivity. They're there in Babylon for 70 years. And when they read the prophet Daniel, among other things, they're gonna be inspired to walk by faith, but they're also gonna see the truth that God is not done with Israel. There's hope for the nation. And in the end, he's gonna restore them from all the Gentile nations of the world. And so they'll find comfort and encouragement, but there's coming a day when the Jewish people are going to pour over the scriptures. A minority of them are doing it today. So, if you go to Jerusalem right now, this is different. When I went to Jerusalem my first trip in 1989, there was one congregation of Messianic Jews. They numbered about 25. This morning, there are 30 congregations in Jerusalem alone of Messianic Jews. But that's just a foreshadowing of what is going to happen after the church is removed because the time of Jacob's trouble is designed to bring the Jewish people to the realization that Jesus is Lord. Now go back to Revelation 22 and verse 10 and we'll see why there's opposite counsel that is given. Revelation 22 and verse 10. And he said to me, this angel said to John on God's behalf, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. So with the opening of the church age, the future events that are unfolded in the book of Revelation could happen at any moment. Ever since the day of Pentecost, the return of Jesus has been imminent. He could return at any time. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And the words, tus lugus in Greek, refer to the specific words, namely, the book of Revelation don't seal it up, John. God wants people to actually read and study the book of Revelation. It is to be expounded. It is to be proclaimed. And yet in most churches, it is never cracked. It is never taught. It is an important book. It's not the book of Revelations. There's no such book. It's the revelation, singular, the apocalypsis, the unveiling. God gave the book of Revelation not to conceal truth, but to reveal truth. And John is told not to seal up these words. Why? Because since Pentecost, the return of Jesus is imminent. And so unlike the prophet Daniel, who needed the church age to begin, the Messiah first needed to come. John is told, don't seal up the words, proclaim the words. And a pastor today who doesn't preach either the book of Revelation or the truths found in Revelation, found in many other places in the New Testament, a pastor who does not preach prophecy in relation to the return of Christ, number one, as we'll see in a moment, he's doing a great disservice to unbelievers because there's a time of judgment that is going to come with Christ's return. But he's also doing a great disservice to believers because believers are to be changed and motivated by the truths that are going to happen. Hell is is forever and, and, and heaven is forever. And so he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now here at the end of verse 10, there's an urgency. Notice what he says, the time is near. That is, the end time events are right around the corner. You say he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Yes, he did, and it's been near ever since the ascension of Christ because there's never, ever been a single prophecy that has needed to be fulfilled for the catching up of the church. All kinds of prophecy. Israel had to be in the land. They had to be restored as a nation for the prophecies concerning the second coming to take place. Now, certainly, God could have raptured the church in 100 AD if he wanted, gathered the Jewish people from across the planet, brought them back into the land, and by the midpoint of the tribulation, have a rebuilt temple, and antichrist who defiles it, and on and on and on we could go. But God said in the latter days he would gather the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. And so today in Israel, there are Jewish people from over 100 nations that are present. When would that happen? Ezekiel said the gathering would take place at the end of time. First they are regathered physically and then the Spirit of God is put in them and Jeremiah says that will happen during the great tribulation period. So a failure for a pastor to preach to his flock the truth of the revelation is not only a failure to do what God has commanded us to do, it's just sheer disobedience and it is very foolish. Why? Because there's a blessing that is associated with the study of this book. Bless is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. This book is understandable so much so that you can heed it, you can obey it. Write in the book he'll write in Revelation one eleven. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so the believer who fails to learn the truths found in the revelation, they are forfeiting a blessing that God promises. And listen, any healthy church, any faithful church, any biblical church is a second coming church. They are preaching prophecy. And so when Paul writes to one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament, the church at Thessalonica, he describes how you turn to God from idols, To serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They were a healthy, growing, caring church because they were an expectant church. They were waiting for the return of Jesus from heaven. In Revelation 22 and verse 10, among other things, it is a command to expound what God has said. You should be teaching your children at home that Jesus is coming back. You need to tell them that someday they will give an account to him. You need to teach it in your Awana classes, in your Upward Sports classes, in your Sunday school classes, in your ABFs. Now you say, when are you gonna get to the outline? I'm getting there. (laughs) When Jesus comes, he is going to settle who we will be, and who we will be will unfold in two groups. The first group is the lost will be forever unrighteous. The lost will be forever unrighteous. Notice verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. Now, John is making a clear connection between what he just said in verse 10 and what he says in verse 11. The time is near, or the King James renders it, the time is at hand, the new King James. He's saying there's a cause-effect relationship between Jesus suddenly showing up and what is going to happen to the people who are here when he comes. It's a warning about those who will put off receiving the Lamb of God. And since the time is very short, since it will come taxis quickly, we got our word tachometer from it, suddenly, which is dealing not so much with the time of time as the kind of time that once it happens, it will be too late. You say, well, does this verse, when he says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, let the one who is filthy still be filthy, does it suggest that God doesn't want people to repent and to change their ways? No, that would go against the whole tenor of what we've studied already in the Revelation, not to mention the rest of Scripture. No, the angel's statement here in verse 11 needs to be understood in light of the previous statement, behold, I come quickly, and the statement for the time is near. Jesus' coming will occur so quickly that people will not have a chance to change the state which they are in. It's a solemn warning that your decision will determine your character, and your character in the end will show where you will spend in eternity. Look, men are born in sin. We are shaped by sin. Unless we are born again, we will never enter the kingdom of God. Unless we are born from above, unless we have a second birth, we're not ready to meet the living God. And apart from faith in Christ... You'll just continue in your wrong, you will just continue in your filthiness. And so when Jesus comes, the loss will continue in their lost, rotten character. And so the point of verse 11 is that when he comes, or if you die before he comes, your character is forever shaped. The rich man who dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever, can never ever change his state. And as Paul brought out in 2 Thessalonians 2, even when the church is caught up and raptured, those who are left behind for that seven plus year period, who have heard the gospel prior to that time, they won't be able to change their state. They will be locked forever in their unrighteousness. There is no cure for his wrong at that point. And so the lost will go on sinning in the end, they will go on suffering for millions and millions of years. But there's a second group, and that is the saved will be forever righteous. The lost will be forever unrighteous, but the saved will be forever righteous. Let me read the second half of verse 11. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Those who have been declared righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus We call that justification, where God doesn't make you righteous. He declares you righteous. He imputes righteousness to your account. God who has determined that you are holy, and that's why every Christian in the New Testament is called a saint. You're looking at St. Carl this morning. Now, they wouldn't have called me that in the church I was raised in. You had to die before you could get that title. And the title was based on works, what you've done, and at least a miracle or two that went with it. But in the New Testament, every believer, even the newest believer, is called a saint. God has declared you holy forever. And so once he's declared you holy, you are to practice that holiness. And so the results of expounding the word of God, the words found in the revelation, will lock some people forever in unbelief, but it will move other people forever in holiness. It's a sobering thought. You reject God's warnings and you can potentially even today fix your eternal state. You know what? One of the saddest verses for me in all the Bible, it concerns the northern kingdom. It's found in Hosea chapter 4. And God said, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Don't do anything. Hosea, don't waste your breath. He's given himself to idols, leave him alone. Why? Because my spirit will not always strive with men. Jesus said about the leaders in, of Israel in his day, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. There's an urgency for people to respond because you may not have the opportunity to respond tomorrow. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12 when he told us to make a decision when he admonished, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Because of a lack of response, the door can be forever closed. He goes on to say in the next verse, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Do you remember the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25? It speaks of those who, because of their lack of response, were not ready when the bridegroom comes. And while they were going to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. God wants you to know that when the Bible is preached, especially the book of the Revelation, these words... It's either an instrument of salvation or damnation. And so in John 12, because the leaders had habitually time and time and time and time again said no to Jesus, God gave them their wish. And so the text says they could not believe. Why? Because they would not believe. The great Princeton theologian, Joseph Alexander, in the 19th century wrote these words. There is a time I know not when... There is a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us not seen which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. While it is called today, repent, my friend, there is a line you can cross where you will put the final callus on your heart and you will not be able to repent. You will go on in your filthiness and in the end you will go on in your suffering. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. That's what he's talking about. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. People who want to keep their sin will eventually get their wish because you don't come when you want to come. You come when God knocks on your heart's door. You can't come to Christ on your own. The Spirit must convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And every week, because God is pulling on people, he brings people here sometimes for the first time because he wants to save them. But you are free to say no And someone whose destiny is fixed, they've crossed that line. You know what they do? They mock and make fun of preachers like me. Peter said of them, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You born again, folks. You're always saying Jesus is coming back. Come on, you can't be serious. You're just another lunatic pastor Brogy. The sad truth is that they are headed for an eternal condemnation. Paul said it this way when the gospel is preached in 2 Corinthians 2, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, those who are being saved, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? There are those who,
1: when they hear the gospel, receive it eagerly. These are the ones that the Bible identifies as enjoying the fragrance of life to everlasting life. But others who consistently reject the gospel look upon it as putrid, and they are the ones the Bible identifies as going from death to eternal death. If you've not yet chosen Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't harden your heart. The Bible says, Receive the Fragrant Aroma of Life. If you'd like to know more about salvation, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click the Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend link right in the middle of the home page. And to listen again to today's study, part two of What Happens When Jesus Returns, use the Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org and search for program REV69. Tomorrow, Dr. Broogie's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude What Happens When Jesus Returns. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.